I'm Jessica Denson, host of Lights On with Jessica Denson here on the Midas Touch Network. Donald Trump has promised chaos and bedlam if the Supreme Court justices dare to uphold the Constitution and affirm his disqualification from office. But what about the price of not upholding it? As we gear up for the historic oral argument before the Supreme Court, there's a lot of faithless punditry out there as to how the justices will rule. We have the antidote for that today. It's an honor, as always, to be joined by Vice President and Chief Counsel for Response for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, Donald Sherman. Donald, welcome back to Lights On. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure as always, um, Donald. So I read through your reply brief, which was filed just last week in response to this um, really obscene threat of chaos and bedlam from Trump and his lawyers to the Supreme Court. Can you kind of just go through how you plugged his uh, so-called defenses or maybe <laughs> lack thereof in your brief? Sure. Well, specifically with respect to his threat of chaos and bedlam, you know, I think the first thing that we pointed out is that there was chaos in bedlam because of the insurrection that he incited after the free, you know, after he refused to accept the results of a free and fair election in 2020. I think another point um, that I would make is that, you know, if there's chaos in bedlam, um, if the Supreme Court rules in our favor, it would only be because Donald Trump decided yet again to ignore the edict of the highest court in the land and continue to seek the presidency despite a court, the highest court in America, affirming that he was disqualified from office and could not appear on the ballot in Colorado. So I think if we prevail, the, the first choice is his. Is he going to abide by the court's ruling or is he not? He often sort of skips over that step. I think most people skip over that step. But we are only here because of Donald Trump's choices. And there will only be chaos and bedlam in the aftermath of the decision if uh, based on Donald Trump's choices. Yeah. And, you know, Donald, I've discussed this kind of threat um, in, in many contexts with you, with other scholars like Lawrence Tribe and We've all seemed to arrive at this consensus that it's very short-sighted to worry about the temporary chaos in Bedlam and not the long-term chaos in Bedlam of reinstalling an insurrectionist to office. Um, I really liked this particular quote out of your brief. It says, Section 3 was a, quote, measure of self-defense. You're quoting from the 1866 uh, 39th Congress. Um, you say those who had, quote, proven themselves faithless would be deprived of the political power to threaten the future peace and security of the country. By excluding oath-breaking insurrectionists from office, Section 3 gave the Constitution a steel-clad armor to shield it and the people from the assaults of faithless domestic foes in all time to come. I mean, Section 3 was really written with foresight for Donald Trump himself, was it not? I think that's right. And, you know, I think the drafters of Section 3 were writing this provision uh, based on their experience in the Civil War, but looking ahead to a, a moment that they could not see. Uh, and, you know, again, um, we haven't had to use Section 3 uh, in the intervening 150 plus years. But, you know, Section 3 wasn't written for the election of 1872, right? It was written for a future that these, uh, that these, lawmakers knew that they would not see, but that they could potentially envision based on the experience that they had. Likewise, 
section, the application of section three to Donald Trump in this moment is far less about the election of 2024, but whether we as a nation have free and fair elections 50, 100, 150 years from now, and whether a sitting president can incite an insurrection to overturn an election that uh, that they disagree with. And so, you know, I think the framers of Section 3 were quite forward-looking, and hopefully, um, you know, the court in this moment is forward-looking as well. Absolutely. And speaking of those historians on the Civil War, you had an amicus brief filed by 25 Civil War historians, including them, um, James McPherson, a, a preeminent a Civil War scholar from Princeton University. Um, one of the things that they said in their brief was the court should take cognizance that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment covers the present, is forward-looking, and requires no additional acts of Congress for implementation. Um, you mentioned you were telling me before we started this recording of how many amicus briefs have been filed in your support. In a minute, we'll get to some of the more um, recognizable names that have done so. But um, this really, this one, and I think a lot of them plug a lot of the holes that um, Donald Trump is trying to poke in your argument. Um, one of them being that this suggestion that Section 3 is not self-executing. Can you just remind our viewers why, in fact, um, this doesn't require an additional act of Congress? It stands on its own. Well, all you have to do is read the text, right? Um, and and understand the history of 14th Amendment jurisprudence. So first of all, the text makes no mention of uh, enacting legislation being required. It simply says that Congress uh, shall have the authority to, uh, to uh, create implementing legislation. But then if you look at the history um, in that time, as these historians laid out, uh, making clear that they intended Section 3 to be uh, immediately effective, that was uh, confirmed by the fact that people applied for amnesty before there was enacting legislation because they knew that they were disqualified, regardless of whether there was uh, a federal statute that, um, that was created. And then you look at uh, the history of 14th Amendment jurisdiction going forward. Um, you know, under Trump's reading, it would effectively eviscerate a century and a half worth of, of legal precedent uh, enforcing the other parts of the 14th Amendment without uh, without legislation. And so, you know, there were not just historical briefs, uh, briefs from historians, but also briefs from civil rights leaders, including the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's the leading civil rights lawyer of our time, making clear that the 14th Amendment and its provisions are self-executing and don't need federal legislation to be implemented. And so Trump's argument there is both counterfactual based on the history as the historians lay out, but also um, in conflict with more than a century worth of legal precedent as outlined by uh, lawyers in the civil rights community. Absolutely. Um, another argument that I think remains obscene to the rest of us, but is nonetheless being used in Trump's defense is this notion that the presidency is not an office. Um, or the president is not an officer um, who has taken the oath and is therefore disqualified for having engaged in insurrection. Um, you know, Donald, I've hear, I hear, like as I mentioned in my brief open, so much punditry as to um, why the Supreme Court justices may have off-ramps, convenient off-ramps, not reach the, the threshold issue of insurrection and just say, oh, he's not an officer, we're going to let it go at that. I mean, that would be um, 
counter to precedent, counter to um, Supreme Court rulings in the past. We even found this letter in my research. I found this letter from uh, Justice Scalia to, I think, two of the scholars who are in support of this notion that the presidency is not an office, um, where he can he wrote an opinion affirming the presidency as an office and had concurrence from Justice Roberts, Thomas, and Alito. Um, can you? plug this hole for once and for all on the presidency as an office and the president as an officer. Sure. Um, so again, referring back to the historian briefs, um, you know, there's ample evidence in the public record, including during the debates uh, about Section 3, um, as well as, you know, dictionary definitions of the time and other historical artifacts, newspaper articles, et cetera, making clear that Section 3 was meant to apply to the president and the presidency. Um, one of their foremost concerns of the framers of Section 3 was that they did not want Jefferson Davis to assume the presidency of the United States. And again, the historian briefs lay this out um, in great clarity. I would note that you know while we have three separate briefs from historians filed in support of our clients, uh, I'm not aware of Trump having any historians. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons that motivated the historians to write <laughs> um, was because they wanted to see history uh, vindicated. Um, but also one doesn't even need to look further than the text itself, right? Um, it would be patently absurd for uh, the text of Section 3 to refer to all uh, or to any officer, civil and military, um, under the United States or, you know, any officer of the United States, and that it would not apply to the highest office in the United States. And when you look at the president's um, brief, um, they sort of highlighted the absurdity because the new argument from Trump is not that uh, Section 3 doesn't apply to uh, presidents, but that Section 3 does not apply to Donald Trump as president because the only oath that he took as a government officer was the oath uh, of office to serve as president of the United States. So somehow the framers of Section 3 could back into holding a president accountable because they had taken a prior oath as a senator or a congressman or some other lower office. But Donald Trump is, you know, who's the only president who never previously served in the military or in the government on behalf of the United States is the one person with which this provision does not apply. It's uh, a laughable reading of, uh, of the plain words, but also it is a dereliction of the historical evidence um, you know, that makes clear that this provision was meant to be a defense mechanism that applied to every officer, including the highest office in the land. Yeah, it really is ludicrous. Um, if I'm not mistaken, their, their contention is that he swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, but not to support it. <laughs> <laughs> not to support it, which is yeah. really so very telling, is it not, Donald? Um, it, it is quite <laughs> telling. And, you know, again, um, not only is this a, a counterfactual, but we also received a helpful amicus brief from three Republican former governors, uh, mm -hmm. Mark Rasko of Montana, who's a former RNC chair as well, uh, Governor Christy Todd Whitman of New Jersey and Governor Bill Weld of Massachusetts, who mm -hmm. made clear that they, in, on many occasions, took an oath to support the Constitution and that oaths have meaning and that um, you know the president's oath to uh, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution has to 
be an oath to support the Constitution. It is a more exacting oath, not a lesser oath than lower officers take. And that, you know, Trump's uh, sort of argument that somehow he, the oath that he took or the oath of the president is excluded is, um, you know, not just incorrect, but wildly offensive uh, to the notion that, you know, all high government officers have to pledge uh, to the Constitution. Absolutely. And speaking of Republican Amici, you have um, another um, brief filed by conservative Judge uh, Luttig. Um, I had asked you before you were on about whether you would have conservative voices and you said um, you said you were hopeful. And so I'm so glad to you know have this rendezvous with you where we can confirm, in fact, that so many conservative and Republican voices have come to your defense in support of, of your case, your side here. Um, one of the things that stood out to me from the brief from Judge Luttig and um, 20 other lawyers, many of them conservative, former office holders, former Homeland Security directors, cabinet holders, um, is is this quote. He said it says, ultimately this case has a virtual confession. On December 3rd, 2022, Mr. Trump posted that his unfounded accusation of widespread election fraud, quote, allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. He has said as much the same, he has said much the same in his January 6th speech on the ellipse. Um, this really, you know, to me, Donald gets to the heart of why we use Section 3. Um, we use it to prevent somebody who has has disregarded their oath from having that opportunity again. There continues to be this argue raised that it's somehow undemocratic to remove someone from the ballot, um, lest we forget that Donald Trump himself did not acknowledge the results of the 2020 election and tried to deprive our voters, we the people of the democratic process they had engaged in. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think a number of uh, of our Miki made this point, especially the conservative Miki. But our client's case, which is on behalf of four Republican and two independent voters in Colorado, is not about partisanship. It's about patriotism. It's about whether uh, we are going to continue to have free and fair elections in this country or whether, you know, an official, even the president of the United States, is allowed to incite a violent insurrection to invalidate 80 million plus voters because they don't like the result. I think, um, you know, the the briefs that we received, including uh, the brief and support from Judge Ludig and his colleagues, was incredibly powerful, not just laying out the uh, legal case in support of Donald Trump's disqualification, but also imploring the court to look to originalism and to uh, and to really look to it its own sacred oath to defend the Constitution against the threat that we find ourselves in in the form of Donald Trump and his insurrection against the Constitution. Yeah, well, I, I really liked something also from another um, amicus brief that I found. This actually coming from a direct descendant of President Theodore Roosevelt, Kermit Roosevelt III. Um, he's currently a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, um, great grandson of the former President Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and he jo joined dozens of commentators in this particular amicus brief. And this is the quote that really stuck out to me. Weighing the consequences of disqualification is not the role of a court. 
especially where, as here, the Constitution explicitly remits that issue to the political process. It really got to that um, point we started on, that um, it's not the justice's job to find their way out of this, and it's or that this is an inconvenient matter for them because of the political ramifications. This is a simple following of the law issue. It is their duty to do it. It is their duty to uphold the Constitution. And as has been so often the case in the Trump era, I think we're so often focused on the possible bad consequences of doing the right thing versus the consequences of not doing the right thing. Um, can you just give me your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen a number of historical inflection points where this was at issue. Uh, we need not look any further than uh, segregation and, uh, and, and wonder where would we be as a nation if the court cowed to concerns of political violence or concerns of political unrest because a loud minority or even a majority of the country did not uh, agree with the application of the of the Constitution. That's literally why we have a Constitution, because there are some rules, there are some values that must persist regardless of popular uh, opinion or popular will. Um, you know, the other thing I would note is that this court in particular has already said that politics should have no bearing on their decisions in some in, in in some prior decisions from the last term. So, you know, this court in particular need not look any further than, you know, its own decisions um, over the last couple of years um, to sort of see guideposts that would uh, suggest that it should not worry about political consequences for following the Constitution. And I think the Constitution is clear here that uh, former President Trump is disqualified uh, and should be barred from ballots. Absolutely. And I don't think we can overstate the the weight and importance of this decision from SCOTUS, both in the, the immediate sense and the long-term historical sense, what it will mean for future insurrectionists, future oath breakers. Um, but in this very moment, by just one example, um, an Illinois elections board ducked the issue um, of whether or not Trump should remain on the ballot because of this pending case in spite of the fact that their Republican members, one of the Republican members, a woman by the name of Kathy McCory, prefaced her vote refraining from um, engaging in the, you know, ballot removal because of, you know, the, the looming issue. She said, I want it to be clear that this Republican believes that there was an insurrection on January 6th. There is no doubt in my mind that he manipulated, instigated, aided, and abetted an insurrection on January 6th. So the consensus is out there, yet people feel that they need this leadership from the judiciary, um, you know, making this a, a, a standard across the board. Um, it's extremely consequential for not just Colorado, as I know you knew going into this legislation, but for the whole country, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and it's important to remember, we had a five-day trial with uh, nearly 100 exhibits, which President Trump and his legal counsel participated in, and, you know, and the judge reached a finding. And every fact finder that has reached the merits of this question has, has reached the same conclusion, that January 6th was an insurrection and that Donald Trump engaged in that insurrection and is therefore an insurrectionist. And so, you know, there, there's been ample process and there is a great deal of consistency and clarity 
on that um, on that score. And so we'll see how the highest court um, handles the issue. But certainly we are prepared to live with the result. Um, I certainly can't say the same for um, for the former president. Well. You have won already, Donald. You have won, absolutely. You have won on the merits. You have won on the law, on the facts. And um, I have great hope for you going forward. Um, I'll just mention before we go that we're going to have the privilege of um, speaking with Jason Murray, your co-counsel, after he gives his oral argument in the Supreme Court. So um, we're very much looking forward to that, too. We're excited to see him uh, on February 8th and excited to have him uh, join you after that. Absolutely. All right, Donald. Well, all strength and uh, and excellent um, forward looking, hopeful wishes to you and your team and our entire country. Um, thank Thanks. you, as always, for joining me. <laughs> appreciate you. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this special episode of Lights On. As always, you can find uh, Lights On wherever you get your audio podcasts by looking up Lights On with Jessica Denson. Also, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, Jessica Denson, and you'll always find the Lights On playlist, our live episodes on Friday, and special episodes like this one. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and let your light shine. Love this video? Make sure you stay up to date on the latest breaking news and all things Midas by signing up to the Midas Touch newsletter at MidasTouch.com newsletter.